Welcome back to the Cuban Genealogy Podcast and our continuing series on how to be a Cuban American in 30 days. In this episode, we interview Gustavo Perez Firmat, author of Life in the Hyphen, the hyphen being the hyphen in Cuban American. Don't forget you can also support Digital Cuba and our digitizing efforts at digitalcuba.org backslash support. And don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you, and now on to the interview. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to my interview. So um, just to give you a little background about me, so my grandmother uh, was born in Placetas, in Las Villas. So she, um, she was the middle child of 10 children, and she, passed, she was the last one to pass away in 2016. So um, I wanted to get you know, to know more about her. She always wanted to go back to Cuba, but it just, it never happened. So she passed away here in this country? Yeah, in, in Chicago. So um, she, she lived in Miami for a little while, but um, they went to Chicago because her brother got a job with Chicago newspaper as a typesetter. So she, she, she spent most of her life in Chicago. So my father was also born in Havana, um, but he came here when he was seven to, to the Chicago air, to Chicago. So. Right. You know, he speaks Spanish, but he's never been to Cuba. Or... Well, he was, born there. He, was, he was born there. Right. So he has those memories, but um, okay. he, ne- he never went back. So he just, you know, Cubans just kind of went, went to all these different places and kind of, you know, created their own, their own little Cuban groups wherever, wherever they went. So, right. so I was just more curious about, about her and her story. So, you know, there's nothing for us on Ancestry.com. There's no records for us for for Cuba. So <clears throat> that's that's what's the last name? Bello? Bello. Okay. And then Martinez. So Bello Martinez. So there's Martinez all over the world. So yeah, my grandma, my my maternal grandmother was from Martinez. Oh, okay. And Perez is another one of those common yeah. last names. So yeah, we're everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So. So then I started doing the, uh, the research in Cuban cemeteries. So I've added, there are about 36 records online. I've added about 3,000. Um, so I'm trying to preserve the Cuban heritage, what, what we can and what we can get online to get Cuban Americans excited about researching their Cuban roots. Cause there's a, there's a big curtain there that's, you know, so close, but it might as well be on another planet because right. it's so, disconnected from the rest of the world so yeah, it's called planet cuba totally totally planet cuba so i'm trying to preserve those records and now we are working with the catholic church in cuba to um digitize the parish records and that that sounds easy but that's going to take years mm-hmm. because the books are old you have to be really careful then we have to go and type all the names and Cuba's 500 years old we don't have books that are 500 years old but some churches are 200 years old. Some churches are 150. So that's a very big project. So I'm focusing on those two distinct groups. And, you know, I do this research, you know, at Library of Congress. I'm in Washington, D.C. right now, but I, w- I wanted to reach out to other Cuban Americans and do some interviews and, right. and find other people's stories and, and keep it kind of interesting. So um, I saw you on the PBS special. Right. Um, but it didn't tell, you know, I'm always curious about, you know, going back even further like if if you know your story you know we have a lot of spanish mm-hmm. influence you know africa there's other parts other europeans that came there's 
the Taino was there. I just, I wanted to know more about your your family history, like as far back as you know. My family history is pretty. It's like a lot of other Cubans, which it it, it doesn't go back in Cuba very far, because uh, two of my grandparents, my paternal grandmother, my paternal grandfather, were born in Spain. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, there's an ancestry.com. The Spanish version of it has a her last name was Cantarín, Constantina Cantarín. And she came from a little aldea, a little town in Zamora, sort of in central Spain. And they have a whole website about Los Cantarín and my grandmother and all of that family. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, you know, two of my grandparents were born in Spain. Uh, and so that my father was a first generation Cuban. Right. And on the other side, let's see, um, my Firmat side, my mother's side, uh, Firmat was my, um, let's see, my great, my great grandfather was born in Barcelona. There were two brothers and they like happened so often in the 19th century, they emigrated um, to the new world. And one brother, my great-grandfather stayed in Cuba. The other brother went to Argentina, and he was a railroad engineer. And actually, there's a city, you know, a small city in Argentina called Firmat, after this guy who brought the railroad to that particular place. And so um, every once in a while, I'm, you know, I'm in touch via email uh, with my distant Argentinian Firmat cousins. Wow. As far as my, uh, so that's my, my maternal grandfather as well, as well as, as far as my, uh, my maternal uh, grandmother, she also, she's Martinez, but they, I'm less, I'm more vague about them, but they also immigrated from Spain in the 19th century. So, um, so I don't go back, my family doesn't go back in Cuba very far. As, as you probably know, one of the paradoxes of Cuban history is that after Cuba got its independence from Spain, uh, immigration from Spain increased, right? There was this great inflow of Spaniards, but in Cuba, all Spaniards were called Gallegos, you know, from Galicia. So this was massive influx of Gallegos in the first, first two decades of the 20th century, which is when my grandmother arrived as, a, as an adolescent and my grandfather arrived as a stowaway uh, from Galicia. Yeah. His father remarried and, you know, he didn't want to live with a wicked stepmother. And so he was 16 years old. He got on some sort of ship and he came as a stowaway. That's a family, that's a family story. I don't know, you know how accurate it is, but, it's, you know, it's a good story. Yeah, those are great stories. So where, where in Cuba, what... What provinces were your fam? Where your, did your family live? We all lived in Havana. Okay. We lived in Havana. Um, I, I lived in in a part of Marianao, which is called El Reparto Coli, hmm. and that's where I was born, and that's where our house was. Um, my parents married in the early '40s, but they didn't have me until you know years later, 1949. And the family story is that my mother told my father, "Look." If you want to have children, you got to build me a house because they were living with my, with her mother-in-law, Constantina, who was quite a character. 
and uh, my mother wasn't happy living with a you know in this extended family multi-generational family setting as they say these days and so my father you know built her a house and then I was, i'm as old as the house is assuming the house is still there the only thing is that the house was next door to my grandmother's house <laughs> so she didn't achieve my mother didn't achieve the distance that she wanted but what she did do is she put up a fence between the two properties so that you know there was this thing so those are great stories um so i just want to talk to you briefly so about um cuban identity uh i enjoyed reading about your life on the hyphen right um and how do we how do we translate that to to future cuban generations you know um my so my my generation of family they my grandmother's generation she was the last one so she's gone Right. So we've lost a lot of that oral histories. Um, trying to go back and preserve some of these things and maintain your identity. And for me, it's helpful to maintain my identity by by kind of honoring my my ancestors and and knowing better who they were. Sure. Um, so, but how you know how do we in a digital world and with um, these younger Cuban Americans, you know, ones like me, where my Cuban father went to Chicago, so my American mother, my Cuban father, you know, it just, it's kind of a ricochet effect across the country. It's not just Miami and it's not just, you know, New Jersey, so. No, there are Cubans everywhere. There are Cubans everywhere. Um, yeah, I don't know, you know, in, in the case of life on the hyphen in my generation, which as, as you saw, I, I call it the 1.5, the one and a half generation, first generation are people like my, my parents, um, your grandparents, who were born and grew to adulthood in Cuba. Second generation is like my kids, who were born here of Cuban parents. But then wedged between those two generations, you have the, you know, the one and a half generation of people who were born in Cuba, but who you know, came to this country, as your dad did, you know, as children. Mm -hmm. okay. And you know, I wrote Life on the Hyphen a long time ago, but and by at that time there were still actually two two generations of Cubans older than I am. My father was alive, my mother was alive, my grandmother was alive. Both of them were alive in the nineties. But that's no longer the case. And my generation, your dad's generation, we're the only generation of Cubans who have any sort of memory, however vague, however imprecise, however um infantile of of Cuba BC, Cuba before Castro, or Cuba before the catastrophe. So, you know, I have the sort of this last of the Mohicans yeah. feeling. Or maybe it should be last of the mojitos feeling. <laughs> that, you know, that once we once we're gone, then nobody will remember uh, what what you know, old Cuba. Uh, nobody in Cuba and nobody out, outside of Cuba because it's been so, so, so many years, you know, 60 years of, um, of dictatorship. So I read that you love speaking Spanish. So I love speaking Spanish, but I learned Spanish at university. And when I went to Cuba or even when I go to Miami, like that's a whole other version of Spanish. So sure. I don't know how we can 
you know, I went to Cuba to, to work on the cemetery project and I could speak to them, but there were times when they have all these, it must be like a Canary Islands influence or, you know, it's an influence from Spain and then it, it morphed on its own. And it's a whole other, it's a whole other thing that I just can't learn out of a textbook. So yeah. how, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I, I don't speak very much, even though Spanish is very important to me, it's, it's my native uh, tongue. I don't speak it very much. Uh, I speak it when I'm teaching because I only teach in Spanish. And that's one reason I only teach in Spanish, so I get an opportunity to speak in class. And then I speak it, you know, with, with Cuban friends. I'm married to an American and Marianne doesn't speak Spanish, although I think she understands more than she lets on. <laughs> which may not be always a good thing. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it's really, um, and in my classes, I don't speak Cuban Spanish. I speak, I try to speak Esperanto Spanish, international Spanish. Yeah. Because, you know, Cubans, Caribbean Spanish in general, we chop off, you know, an example I use in my class when I'm explaining um, about this is, suppose I say to you, what did I say? And kids look at me, they have no idea. I said, well, I said, este que está aquí. But, you know, we omit S's, we omit the ends of, of words. And so, you know, Caribbean Spanish was just similar to the Spanish spoken in, the, in Andalusia and the Canary Islands is a, you know, it's a very specific variety. And if your ear is not tuned to the music of, of Cuban Spanish, then it can be hard to pick up. Yeah. Also, there's this rapid speech phenomenon that, you know, teams that we speak faster uh, than people in Colombia, for example, or some, you know, someplace, Peru, you know. Uh, yeah. Faster and sometimes louder. And louder, yeah. yeah. Miami cousins, they, they, get, they can get a little, you know, animated and get louder, and even if you're really in the same room. So they told me it's because on a Cuban farm, you have to be loud so they can hear you, you know, hear you throughout the rest of the farm. So that's their excuse for being loud. <laughs> yeah, no, my theory is that, you know, um, is that a lot of, <laughs> a lot of Cuban men are deaf or hard of hearing. And, and that's, and it, that it runs in my family, you know, I mean, all the men in my family, you know, my father, my uncles, my grandparents, they're all hard of hearing. So I think there's something <laughs> about um, at least hard of hearing by American standards. You know, it's like blood pressure. I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me I had a high blood pressure. I said, no, 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 this is cultural. By Cuban standards, I'm perfectly normal. Okay, by American standards, I have a, so uh, maybe the same thing with, uh, with, uh, with hearing. But you know, one thing I wanted to say when you were talking about the different generations and how do you keep the, you know, the past alive is that there's a, even though I, you know, I call myself Cuban American, I'm not really Cuban American. I'm Cuban in America. And there's a big difference between being Cuban American and being a Cuban in America. Uh, my kids are Cuban American, you know, and, um, but I'm, I really, you know, regard myself or feel more like a Cuban in America than a Cuban American. That's a very good point. And your kid speaks uh, Cuban Spanish? Uh, sort of, because they learned my my um, my first wife was Cuban, 
And so um, they grew up speaking Spanish, but, you know, I divorced when they were young. And then they just kept on, you know, learning it in school. And they both speak it pretty well. Um, so, but, but generally we just speak to each other in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so my last question, I just want to talk about how... Oh, by the way, you asked, me, you asked me about Latinx. Yes, I would like to talk to you about Latinx. Um, like, I'm, not know, on, I'm not on board with it, but I'd like to hear your, your thoughts, so. Well, you know, I'm, when I read or hear Latinx, I think of my first wife, because she's my Latinx. I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't, I teach courses on so-called Latino literature, but I'm not Latino, I'm Cuban you know, Cubano, Cubiche, and I think that to some extent the Latino is a statistical fiction. Because if you were to ask, you know, people who have sociologists have done surveys and so on, when you ask Latinos what they are, they usually identify by nationality, not by ethnicity. And so they will say, you know, soy puertorriqueño, soy dominicano, soy cubano, soy nicaragüense, soy whatever, nationality, not ethnicity. And if it is an ethnicity, which, it, which I don't think it is, but if it is an ethnicity, it's a multicultural, um, multiracial ethnicity. What does what does what what do the people who belong to this ethnic group have in common? You can't say that you can say well Spanish. No, that's not true, because a lot of Hispanic American people, you know, who were born in this country, don't speak Spanish, and there's a tremendous difference between. Um, Hispanic Americans who came from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. you know, that's more or less homogeneous. You know, the music is the same, the the food is the same, the racial mix is the same. You know, black and white, uh, but that's very different from from Hispanic Americans who came from Central America. And so, that's why I say that I think a Latin to me the Latino is a statistical fiction which is useful people want to sell products and so on, but I don't think it responds to how, how Hispanic Americans see themselves. Well, you know, it could be just a, this American concept because, you know, I had to fill out the census for 2020 and it, I don't know if you've, you've seen it yet, but it'll say white and it'll say white, not Latin or Hispanic. And then, you know, Latino, Cuban, and then it breaks things down. And it's just, it's not an accurate box for me to check. You know, my father's Cuban, but I'm white. So am I box one or am I box three? There's no, it's just a disconnect from who people really are. Because I'm white and I'm Cuban. But that's not an option in the census. You're either white, not Cuban, or you're Cuban. And I'm like, this, this, this is not very useful information in my opinion no it's mixing it's mixing race with culture and the two things are separate and i mean i guess you would be as i would be a white person of color (laughs) (laughs) but try try and get you know uh, the american government to wrap their minds around that so so i want to ask you quickly about hispanic heritage month because I'd like to participate with Hispanic Heritage Month, but what are we supposed to do the other 11 months out of the year? I guess we're not supposed to 
to to be to speak Spanish and be Latin or Cuban or whatever you know whatever box we are. So Hispanic Heritage Month is when October sometime or something. October. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's you know living in in the U.S. and I was born here, but living in the U.S. it just seems like you know there's all these little boxes and you don't always fit in a box and you can't be out of your box eleven months out of the year. So. Um, <laughs> It's uh, it's it's interesting and, and kind of frustrating all at the same time. And right. I know you're in the academic world, but out outside of it, it seems like Americans don't know much about Cuba at all. And no, even in, even in the academic world, they don't know very much about Cuba. And um, it's tough being a Cuban exile in academe because there's this um, to this day there's this tremendous sympathy for the Cuban dictatorship. And I don't understand it. I mean, I may, I, you know, if, if this was 1968 or something, okay, maybe then it was, you know, but after 60 years. And um, I was once, when I, before teaching at Columbia, I taught at Duke for many years. And Duke, uh, I got a flyer one day in my mailbox announcing Duke's new program of study abroad in Cuba. And so I went to my jefe, the chair of my department, and I asked him, you know, how come I wasn't part of the discussion? And he said to me, Gustavo, because we know you would not have agreed. And that's sort of, you know, if, if you're a Cuban exile, you're put in a box and, um, and you're not part of the conversation because, you know, American Academy is a very strange place. I guess they know better than guess they think they know better than we do. I don't know. Yeah, well, this guy happened to be Argentinian, so I guess, you know. <laughs> I don't uh, know. That's, that's a whole other topic, talking about Argentinian people. So, right. no, I'm just kidding. I love Argentina. <laughs> um, I think that's all, that's all I had. I wanted to keep it kind of brief, and I wanted to, to mix up my research a little bit. So, um, Library of Congress is closed, so it's, I can do some stuff online, but you know, uh, Brian, I think, if I recall correctly, I think there's an oral history project at either at FIU, Florida International, or at the University of Miami, where they have um, taped, you know, hundreds of, of old Cubans from Miami and so on, you know, precisely to preserve, you know, their, their stories. Yes, I love those. Um, it's just my grandmother never was in my, Miami much, so I had to I had to do my own. I have to check on that to see if there's a way to add to that collection. So I've there written. Will, there may well be because it'd be interesting to also for it not to be so Miami centric, right? Given, given that you know there are Cubans everywhere. I don't live in Miami. I'm in North Carolina right now. Right. So um, so yeah yeah. I encourage people even to write things down you know, verbally that stories that we've been told, because even, even, you know, generations today, whether you're 20 or 60 or 80, you still had no, have some story that's been told to you that people that are 30 or 40 or 50, that are doing their Cuban research, aren't writing these stories down, but that's still, that's still, you know, if there's a little bit of, you know, fairy tale in there or, or whatever, it's still a very important um, story that's been that's been told that someone in 20 I might not remember in 30 or 40 years or you know other generations might not know so well, you're good around the same time I wrote life on the hyphen I wrote a memoir called next year in Cuba precisely for that reason 
So, and the, the book is dedicated to my kids and my stepkids. And it's so that they would know the stories. And sometimes I go back and look at the book now and I have forgotten some of the stories that I remembered, you know, back in the nineties. So if I had written that at that point, when my parents were alive, my grandmothers were alive. And so there was a lot more connection with the past, all that stuff, all these stories about Constantina and all the rest would have just disappeared. So, you know, it's important to write for the record, you know, for the record and also for the recuerdo, you know, for the, for the memory, to keep, to preserve the memory of these things. And what, what was the name of that book? It's called Next Year in Cuba. Oh, Next Year in Cuba. Because, you know, we used to get together in Miami, we, my family and many other Cubans, and the, the toast, um, every Nochebuena or every New Year's Eve was, el año que viene estamos en Cuba. La noche, la noche buena que viene estamos en Cuba. And at the beginning, it was a, it was a hopeful toast because I'm sure that you know from your grandparents and your, and your, and your, and your father that we didn't come here planning to stay. We came here to wait because we were certain that any moment the dictatorship would fall and we would, be go, we would go back and we would resume the lives that had been suspended. Um, and there was good reason to think so because, you know, Batista was a, was in power for what, seven years? I mean, nobody thought that Castro would, would, would last. And every year we would say this, and at some point this hopeful toast became a very sad toast because you were saying, el año que estamos en Cuba, and the family had begun to pass away, and you know that really that was not going to happen. El año que viene was not going to come anytime. And it's one of one, one. If I may finish with this, it's one of it's one, it's one of the things that pisses me off. One of the sort of bitter facts of Cuban history that the people who were alive at the beginning of the revolution, so-called revolution, will not be alive to see the end of the revolution. Let's say the people who lived, like my parents, their parents, their grandparents, who lived to see the end of the revolution of the dictatorship, uh, did not live to see the end of the dictatorship. And my generation may not either. You know, who knows? Who knows? Do they, is there, I, I've always historically seen that our revolution has a beginning and an end. I don't know how this one just. That's what, I, that's, what, that's what I tell my students. Look, you know, if there was a revolution in Cuba, it was in January 1959. Okay. What, what has happened since then is a dictatorship. Yeah. You, know, the, the, you know, the Russian, the Bolshevik revolution was in October. You know, 1917, right? The the French Revolution was in 1789. The American Revolution was 1776. You know, and then it stops. But this has become this this narrative that we're still. This is the Cuban Revolution, and you know, if you if you the problem is that if you control the language, you win the argument. Wow. And and you know, the people in Cuba, the government in Cuba, has controlled the language and they've won the argument. And people like me, my, more less me than my parents and grandparents, are, we, we lost, you know? They won and we lost. Well, thank you so much. I guess, can I just end the interview and ask you, um, how, how do you get Cuban food in North Carolina and what is your favorite Cuban food? Well, I get Cuban food because Marianne is a, is a wonderful cook. Oh. 
and um, um, Cubana por fricción, which is an honorary Cuban. And so I get Cuban food at home all the time. And um, my favorite Cuban food, uh, oh gee, whatever, I don't know, cigars, you know? <laughs> A friend of mine says that, says that cigars are Cuban salad. So, no, I, I like I like all kinds of Cuban food. I don't have a particular favorite, you know. I suppose if I were to name a favorite, it would be uh, tamal en cazuela. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking out your time time for me. So okay, I'll, I'll follow up with you and let you know when I when I get it posted on 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 the podcast. So okay, well, good luck, good luck with your podcast, your project. I'm working on on the Irish on Irish Cuba right now. I did French already. Um, I, I saw like, you. I saw you wrote. Uh, you did a podcast about uh, Cuban Jews. Yeah, right? Jubans, and, as they call themselves. Jubans, and there's a lot of Chinese in the mix. Like Cuba is such an interesting place. So there's so many, so many stories to tell. So I just have to, you know, turn this into a full time job somehow. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll keep you posted. Okay, Brian. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you again. You too. Bye.